Now, it's possible that um, in this lecture that this will be uh, scratching where it doesn't itch for some of you. Um, and so I'm, for me, this was an important issue and uh, became an important issue because I had a lot of doubt at one point, um, you know, reading the Gospels and reading what others had written about the Gospels. And what I hope to come to here in the end, in the conclusion, is that C.S. Lewis was right here when he says that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I think um, when we read the Gospel of John, if we really believe, these are the words of Jesus. We have it, we have it accurately translated. Um, Jesus was a historical figure. This is what he said. This is what he did. Um, it really does call us to something uh, that, that requires quite a, a devotion on our part. Um, I think all of us would say, well, yes, it is infinitely important. We'd agree with that. But, um, you know, most of us live our lives as if it's moderately important. And so I think uh, we want to try to enter into this book as much as we can and get the, the meaning. So we're going to talk about doubt a little bit because a lot of uh, the scholarly world, when you begin reading what other people write, it can easily create a lot of doubt. We're going to be dealing with uh, Bart Ehrman and, and some things that are written about the Gospels um, here in this lecture. But, um, you know, you will discover as, you know, you, you really get into this and you begin studying and reading, you'll have many, many opportunities for doubt. We've spent a long time on this issue, the issue of theodicy, a powerful God and a suffering world. Uh, that's certainly one, probably the number one that would cause people just to you know, toss it all out the window. Um, of course, uh, creation evolution would be another big issue that uh, would, um, you know, how do we reconcile that? A lot of books and videos and things that come out that would uh, perhaps create doubt. And I showed DNA here just because Watson and Crick, um, I've shared these quotes before, but they thought it was quite uh, ridiculous to hold a belief in a God. So what do we do with doubt? Well, here's something. I think doubt is not uh, a bad thing. Uh, actually, if it's dealt with in the right way. I like this quote, a belief which leaves no place for doubt is not a belief, it is a superstition. And uh, we tend to place, uh, you know, kind of faith, we link that with religion, evidence, we associate that with science, and we keep the two miles apart. Okay? Um, and I think we should demand evidence in religion as well. It should be evidence-based. Um, I mean, how would you feel if you went to see a doctor and the doctor spent about 30 seconds talking with you and said, you know what, I think you have stomach cancer and I'd like to schedule surgery for tomorrow. And uh, you say, well, I mean, don't you want to do a scan? Take a picture, CAT scan, MRI, uh, colonoscopy, something. And uh, the doctor would say to you, well, don't you have faith? I mean, you would want evidence in that situation, wouldn't you? And so I think as we approach the Bible, and we, we begin to ask ourselves, you know, is this really true? Do I really believe it's true? Do I really want to commit my life and say, yes, I'm willing to really go all the way because I'm absolutely convinced um, we should ask for evidence? And so uh, here's a quote I like from a book called Steps to Christ, which says, God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence. There it is, evidence upon which to base our faith, his existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason. And this testimony is abundant. 
Yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstrations, not claims, not because I said so or someone in authority says so. We should be convinced in our own minds based on evidence. Okay, those to wish to doubt will have opportunity, while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence on which to rest their faith. Okay, so um, I'll just mention here, this is what I'm getting at, challenges about the Gospels. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we tend to be kind of uh, insulated, I think, in our own little community, and we don't really uh, sometimes understand about what theologians, what the theological community as a whole says about the Gospels. And a lot of what is written out there is that the Gospels are inaccurate, inconsistent, and unreliable. Written a long time after the fact. Um, Or that the Gospels, again, written long after the fact and had meaning primarily for the local Christian communities. This actually is the the dominant uh, thought in the scholarly theological world, as I understand it. And uh, what this means is that for each of the Gospels, they were written for that community. There was a John community. There was a Matthew community. And what we have in the Gospels is not so much, um, this is what Jesus did, this is what Jesus said. The Gospels were more written to apply to that community. Okay, so they needed a story that would fit their time, their circumstance, so we have that unique passage in John or Matthew or whatever. Uh, but, but that would be somewhat troubling because, boy, as you're reading through, then you're, you're not really confident, did Jesus say this? Did this actually happen? But it's more, well, that was, maybe some of that was myth, but it was uh, important for that community, and so they went you know, with that story. Okay, so it gets to some big questions. Who was Jesus? Uh, merely a good moral teacher. And as this book here by Bart Ehrman, as as I understood it, he was basically making the point, well, he was just a failed apocalyptic preacher, and there were many of them in that time. Jesus, according to Bart Ehrman, thought the world was going to end during his time, and he was just one of many failed apocalyptic prophets. Okay, so who was Jesus? I think whether you believe he's a legend or whatever position, um, you'd have to say that he's a central figure in human history. Here's a quote by H.G. Wells, the famous uh, author, who had said, I'm a historian, not a believer. But I must confess, as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. And so I think whatever position we're, we're taking on this, we could, we could agree with that. Okay, the question was, who was Jesus? Okay, so here's the the three options that C.S. Lewis would come up with. And I think this is a good argument, okay, which is his basic argument was, well, he's either Lord, he's a liar, or he's lunatic, but there isn't really a lot of in-between. So he said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Okay, so uh, these were his three options here, but in in, uh, 
recent decades, there's been a fourth option. We have to add another L here, and that is legend. And there's been a lot written about perhaps really there never was a Jesus. All, he's just a legendary figure. Okay, so this individual would write, this is a false trilemma. It overlooks a fourth option, Lord, liar, lunatic, or legend. How do we know that the Gospels are an accurate record of events? What if Jesus' words and deeds were greatly exaggerated or even outright invented by later writers? Okay, so, you know, uh, this can be quite troubling. And you begin to worry about these things, and, you know, you're tempted to read the Bible, and you think, boy, how do I, I don't really know if it's true. The scholars don't seem to think it's true. And uh, that can be, uh, can be devastating. So let's, uh, let's deal with the first one. Here And I always feel bad, because uh, this one, I'm going to make some points that may, may support this initially. So if some of you have to leave early, please don't re- jump to any conclusions um, here, unless you've heard the rest of my talk. Okay? So what about inaccuracies? Is, are there any inaccuracies in the gospel? Um, and Matthew seems to have the most of these, so we'll pick on Matthew um, here. And don't worry, we're going to come around and, and I hope make a good point about this in the end. But Matthew opens up uh, talking about the genealogies. And so it's interesting. We have 14 from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from then until the the birth of the Messiah. So that's kind of cool, 14, 14, 14. And so you're reading through here uh, from the time of David, and you're going through all these names, Rehoboam, and so on, Jehoshaphat, and Jehoram, Uzziah, Jotha, and so on. Okay, well, maybe you're just curious. And let's say, well, let's, let's just go to where we find these names in the Old Testament. And so you go to First Chronicles. And what you find here is that between Jehoram and Isaiah, there actually were three other uh, individuals there that are listed in Chronicles. So it wouldn't seem to be quite the neat 14, 14, 14. Okay, maybe this isn't a big deal. But, you know, as you begin to um, discover things like this and you accumulate more and more, uh, that can be uh, worrisome. Let me just give some other examples. Matthew's use of the Old Testament is very interesting. Uh, we have the story of Joseph and Mary running off to Egypt. And then Matthew would say, This was done to make come true what the Lord had said through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Okay, so who was the prophet? Well, that's Hosea. So you go back, you know, all Bibles have a little footnote, so you can find where this was written in Hosea. And there it is. The Lord says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. Okay, it's beautiful. But if you keep reading, but the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. My people sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. So it's kind of interesting that Matthew would take the first part of it here and say this was done in order to make this true, but this part of it, you know, clearly seemed to be referring to to the people of Israel. Anyway, should we worry about things like that? Uh, We have Jesus' words here, saying that, talking to the people and telling them that as a result, the punishment for the murder of all innocent people will fall on you, from the murder of innocent Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And again, follow the footnote in your Bible, and you will see that this links back to a story told in 2 Chronicles. Okay, and you read about that the king, Joash, forgot about the loyal service that Zachariah's father Jehoiada had given him. And you read on. And so that the, the murder here that, uh, that Zechariah was the son of Berechiah and Matthew, well, actually he was the son of uh, Jehoiada. Okay, so 
did Jesus get it wrong? Well, I don't think we'd want to take that position. And, uh, but, but we have the wrong, the wrong father here. So again, do we want to toss it all out because we find something like this? Then we have another quote here in Matthew. That uh, then what the prophet Jeremiah had said came true. They took 30 silver coins. And uh, so, you know, the story about 30 silver coins and Judas. And so you look to Jeremiah and you won't find it in there. No story in Jeremiah about the 30 silver coins. Well, this is a quote from uh, Zechariah. Go to Zechariah 11.13. And there you have a remarkable parallel that we mentioned about the 30 silver coins and how that parallels with Judas. But it's in Zechariah, not Jeremiah. Um, we have the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, okay, clearly told two times, once in Matthew, once in Luke. In Matthew 5, it's happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. Kingdom of heaven belongs to them. In Luke, it's happy are you poor. Kingdom of heaven is yours. Um, well, which one, what did Jesus say? Spiritually poor or poor? Um, they have the same telling twice. Um, several years ago, um, I, I tried to, as best as possible, put together a chronology based on all four of the Gospels to figure out when Jesus went from where to where. And if this was kind of uh, what came out of that. Um, we have Jesus calming a storm in Matthew. Okay, And after this, he came to the territory of Gadara or Gerasa. On the, on the other side of the lake, he was met by two men who had demons. Okay? We read the story in Luke. Again, same story. Jesus calms the storm. Jesus and his disciples sailed on over to the territory of Gerasa. It's the same place. And as Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a man from the town who had demons in him. Okay, so again, was it two men? Was it one man? Um, well, it seemed to be the same story. So we wonder, was it one or was it two? Uh, we have these interesting parallels here in uh, Matthew and Mark. Um, which I'll, I'll show in just a minute here. First in Matthew, Jesus spoke a third time about his death. And then the wife of Zebedee came to Jesus with her two sons, and he said, and she said, can my son sit on your right side? Okay, so in this story, it's the wife of Zebedee that came to Jesus. We go to Mark, again, same thing. Jesus speaks a third time about his death. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, can we sit? at your right side. Okay, so was it the mother? Was it James and John? Maybe all three were there? I don't know. But there, it's, it's told differently. Again, we'll continue this parallel between Matthew and Mark. So Jesus speaks a third time about his death. Then there is a request to sit at the right side, either by the mother or by James and John. And then Jesus says, both in Matthew and in Mark, same thing like the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve. And we have the same thing in Mark. So the point, only point I'm trying to make here is that Matthew and Mark, they're telling the same thing in sequence. Third time about the death, request to sit at the right hand, like the Son of Man who came not to, to be served, but to serve. Okay, but then the sequence here in uh, Matthew, right after this, Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho. A large crowd was following and then we have two blind men who were sitting by the road. Two blind men. Okay? In Mark, again, same sequence of all of these events. 
But in Mark, they came to Jericho again, and as Jesus was leaving, just like they were leaving in the Matthew account with his disciples and a large crowd, now we have one blind man, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. So was it two? Was it one? Um, well, we were told both ways. And so, you know, the issue here is all scripture is inspired by God. And when we find these things, uh, what do we do with it? How do we imagine? It really is a uh, question, I think, of how we understand the subject of inspiration. Um, a few years ago, I gave a talk here at the university church, and this was my title, Inspired Pen or Inspired Men. In other words, uh, is God in the pen of the writer? Or does God inspire the mind of the writer? And human beings, being what they are, sometimes... Uh, you know, can, can be forgetful. How does inspiration work? We tend to imagine that the Bible is dictated by God. Okay, and therefore should be absolutely every word, every account, um, completely flawless. Okay, but I think that's, uh, I think the Bible is perfect in what it is trying to convey to us. Um, but I think if we read a lot of passages, here's one in, in 1 Corinthians, it, it's hard to see God in the pen. Here's Paul talking, 1 Corinthians 1. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. No one can say then that you are baptized as my disciples. Oh yes, I also baptized Stephanus and his family, but I can't remember whether I baptized anyone else. Now, could the Holy Spirit of truth not remember who Paul had baptized? I mean, absolutely. But Paul here, he can't remember, and he's writing this down. Okay, but does this destroy our view of inspiration? Just because Paul, as he's writing this letter, can't remember something. Okay, again, it's how we understand uh, how the Bible came to us. Um, also in Corinthians, we have Paul saying, I don't know of anything else the Lord said about marriage. All I can do is give you my own advice. Now, that kind of labels it. I don't have a word from God on this, but I'll give you my own advice. And what follows is his own advice. Now concerning what you wrote about unmarried people, I do not have a command from the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy, mercy is worthy of trust. Now, you know, we would like to trust Paul's opinion, right? But it's his opinion. And he ends it by saying, that is my opinion, and I think that I too have God's spirit. Okay. Um, again, I don't think this is inconsistent with the view that God inspired the Bible writers. But just the way this is written here, Paul's giving his opinion about marriage. Okay, so uh, here are just a few words um, by uh, Ellen White just on the subject of inspiration, that not as evidence of uh, proof, but just as a concept that, that I agree with. There is not always perfect order or apparent unity in the scriptures. The miracles of Christ are not given in exact order, but are given just as the circumstances occurred, which called for this divine revealing of the power of Christ. The Bible is not given to us in grand superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men. Everything that is human is imperfect. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say that such an expression is not like God, but God is not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. 
Okay, so the, again, the mind was inspired. We have an inspired record, but I think that allows for some, uh, you know, for minor mistakes that doesn't require that we toss the whole thing. And one more, it is not the words of the Bible that are inspired. I mean, that's kind of a challenge. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men, sometimes women, that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. But the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus, the utterances of the man are the word of God. So I think we could, uh, we could give Matthew some slack here. I mean, they didn't, uh, he didn't have uh, you know, 50 Bibles in his home like we do. Um, they had scrolls that were rare. And so as he's writing about Jesus and remembering that story about, uh, you know, the, Jesus talking about Zechariah, there, there are a lot of Zacharias in the Old Testament. Okay, he just got the wrong father. And I don't think that's necessarily a, a big deal. A case I'd like to make from this lecture is that the Gospels um, are a reflection of an eyewitness account. And an eyewitness account uh, as you begin to talk with patients uh, and you begin, begin to get stories, as you frequently need to do, do this from family members, you will recognize something that is quite characteristic of an eyewitness account. Um, in neurology, probably the most common reason that I need to call family members is um, someone has epilepsy. Okay? And if just the patient is there, that's not very helpful. Well, what happens to you? I don't know. Well, you need to call family members. You have to call witnesses. And uh, just last week, or I guess it was a few weeks ago, um, I had a patient that had, uh, was having spells, and so I called three different witnesses, and I wrote down what the three witnesses who were right there described. And all three were quite remarkably different. Uh, the seizure lasted 30 seconds, the seizure lasted three minutes, the seizure lasted seven minutes. The seizure was in the kitchen, the seizure was between the kitchen and the bedroom, the seizure was in the bedroom. I mean, they were all there. And so when you have different witnesses describe watching the same thing, you will get variation. And so I think the variations that we see in the gospel actually support an eyewitness account and actually provide some evidence that, that is actually good. We actually like this rather than um, you know, being uh, destructive to our faith. Okay, again, what is the purpose of inspiration then? In the Bible, we have in clear lines the revelation of God's character, of his dealings with men and the great work of redemption. And just in one sentence, the Bible is the book that unfolds the character of God. So is the Bible successful to that extent? That's the point of inspiration. Okay, so a little bit on that point here. Um, next, I'll just talk a little bit about this one. Remember another uh, challenge that generally accepted for over 100 years is that the Gospels were written long after the fact, not by eyewitnesses, and that they had meaning mainly for the local Christian communities. And um, here are two very good books that I would recommend. Uh, most of what I'm going to talk about here in the rest of this comes from these two books, The Jesus Legend by Paul Eddy and Greg Boyd, and Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by uh, Richard Bauckham. And which I think make a really good case, both of them, for reading the Gospels as an eyewitness account. <clears throat> First of all, um, just 
in the Gospel of John. Okay, the book ends with this. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. Now, I mean, this would be quite a false claim, wouldn't it, if this was written several hundred years after the fact, that this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. It's a claim. I was there. I saw it, and I'm writing down what I saw. And uh, 1 John, as it opens up, is even more direct um, in that. 1 John 1, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, who we have heard and seen. We saw him, and with our own eyes, and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And it goes on. He was revealed to us. We ourselves have actually seen and heard. It's repetitious. We were there. We saw. We heard. We touched. Okay, this, this is a claim of eyewitness. Um, even the Gospel of Luke, where Luke doesn't claim to be an eyewitness, but he claims that he researched it. He talked to people who were there. Okay, and, and again, if you're just comparing, um, if you read literature of a legendary figure, it does not read like this at all. Okay, because Luke opens up, Dear Theophilus, many people have done their best to write a report of the things that have taken place among us, like Mark and Matthew. They wrote what we have been told by those who saw these things. Again, by those who saw these things from the beginning and who proclaimed the message. And so, Your Excellency, because I have carefully studied all these matters from their beginning, I thought it would be good to write an orderly account for you. Um, Sometime it just would be useful. Read some of the Gnostic writings, just by comparison. And what you will find is that it's, it's nothing like this. It's always very ethereal. There are all of these, you know, spirit, spirit uh, heavenly things, weird names. It's not like this, uh, I've written an orderly account, that kind of uh, writing in any way. Now, I find this quite compelling myself. Things that would have been left out of the Gospels if it weren't for the fact that they were true. And there's actually a term for this. It's called the embarrassment factor. Okay. In other words, if you're writing and you're trying to create a legendary figure, uh, you certainly would not include uh, these details. Uh, this is in contrast to uh, ancient records. You know, If you go back and read about kingdoms uh, thousands of years ago, and you just get the records from one kingdom, uh, what you will find is they won all their battles. They never lost. Okay, the only way you can really put history together is to get the records from other kingdoms. Okay, and then you find out, well, actually, that wasn't true. They only recorded their victories. Okay, and so, um, you know, if, again, we're just trying to make Jesus a hero, uh, you would not include many of the things that, that we actually find in the Gospels. Um, just uh, all of the interactions Jesus had with women. I mean, uh, women were really low down on the totem pole at this time. And so you wouldn't include these details about the Samaritan woman at the well. You wouldn't have Jesus talking with her or a Canaanite woman. I mean, you just would leave that out. That would be quite offensive to the audience. Um, certainly, the woman caught in adultery uh, can't get more countercultural than that. And the women at the tomb. Again, if you're making this up, you're a man writing this. Would you, uh, would you say, okay, let's see, let's have the men scared to death in the upper room and let's have the women, the brave ones down there at the tomb? You know, the only way it makes sense is just to say that's actually what happened. Okay, would you have Jesus say things like, why do you call me good? Kind of an odd statement. Uh, Son of God, why do you call me good? 
Would you have Jesus' own family saying he has a demon? Would you have him hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes as he was criticized for? Um, Or just odd little statements. You know, Jesus traveled through a town, and then we have the words, he was not able to perform any miracles there. Okay, it's just kind of an unusual statement. Okay, and again, I think maybe the only way we can make sense of that is just that, well, that's what happened. He wasn't able to perform any miracles there. It wouldn't seem to instill perhaps uh, much faith. Okay, we have um, even at the resurrection, okay, they're up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm sorry, after the cross, Jesus is going to be uh, transfigured. And we have the 11 disciples went to a hill in Galilee where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, even though some of them doubted. Now, that's kind of unusual. Some of them doubted. Uh, again, you would not choose to add a statement like that. If you're trying to write a document just so that people, you know, it's a home run and you're trying to get them sold on Jesus. Okay, can you think of many uh, king leaders who would say something like this? Like the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve. This is not at all what they expected in the Messiah. And again, you're trying to get a following. Would you actually choose to have Jesus say something like that? Again, we have Jesus' family. When they heard about what Jesus was doing, they set out to take charge of him because people were saying he's gone mad. Um, just things that really only make sense to have it that way if, if that was really what actually occurred. And would you choose, I mean, not only to have Jesus dying on a cross, the worst form of death, but to have him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, now we have to struggle with why Jesus said that. But again, is this, would these be the words you would put in Jesus' mouth? if you're trying to make something out of Jesus and you're trying to make people follow Jesus, his dying words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, Um, the disciples, the followers, when you look at legendary figures, the the followers of the legendary figure are always great. Okay, They, they also are heroes. And that's not the case in the Gospels. The disciples are quite dull. They're doing dumb things all the time. Okay, and we have Peter. You know, you'd want this left out if you were Peter, where Jesus would turn and say, get away from me, Satan. You wouldn't want that in there, would you? What's Thomas known as? Doubting Thomas, okay, because of the stories that are told about Thomas. Um, We have Jesus saying things like, love your enemies, and then we have the disciples doing things like, well, should we call down fire from heaven on them? Remember, and Jesus had to scold them. The disciples appear rather dull. Um, We have Jesus in Mark. Six, end of Mark 6, he feeds 5,000 with the loaves and fishes. And it's just a couple stories later in Mark that now we have 4,000 people, and uh, the disciples say, well, what could we possibly do to feed all these people? And Jesus says, well, what do you think? Boy, it'd take a lot of money to feed that many people. Hmm, what could we do? And he had to, you know, they, they didn't get the point of that. He, well, he just fed 5,000 with a few loaves of fish, you know, loaves of bread and fish. So again, they appear dull. Okay, now, if you were James and John, how would you like this story told of you? That the wife of Zebedee came to Jesus with her two sons, bowed before him, and asked him for a favor. What do you want? Jesus asked. And she answered, promised me that these two sons of mine will sit at your right and your left when you are king. Okay, that uh, 
You know, the story is recorded that your mom went and asked Jesus to make you at the right and, and left side. Um, again, you might not want that in there. So the embarrassment factor. Okay, we also have, uh, and I think this is quite compelling to me, the details and names that are in the gospel that would seem to be characteristic of an eyewitness account. So we read about, on the way they met a man named Simon, who was coming into the city from the country. Again, do we care that he was coming into the city from the country? Well, it's just in there because it's what happened. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was from Cyrene and was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Okay, these details, superfluous details, are a hallmark of an eyewitness account, not the fictional uh, story. Okay, we read about Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the wife of Zebedee. Okay, it would be very hard if you're making this up to add all these names, fathers, sisters, other people that were related, someone who's coming from Cyrene, at some point, the, the lie is just going to kind of collapse to include lots and lots of details like this if they weren't true. And again, the blind beggar has a name, and he has, his father has a name. And again, the best explanation is because there was an eyewitness. They knew the man. They talked with him later. They found out who his father was, and so they added it um, to the account. Okay, just, just the way the Gospels read uh, give a, a credibility. Listen to how many details there are here in Mark. It was now two days before the festival of Passover and unleavened bread. Okay, so we have a time reference. The chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for a way to arrest Jesus. So we know what they're doing. Jesus was in Bethany. We know where he is. He's at the house of Simon. And we know something about Simon. He suffered from a dreaded skin disease. While Jesus was eating, a woman came in with an alabaster jar. Detail, detail, detail. It gives credibility. Uh, just all the names here in the account in Luke and dates. It was the 15th year of the rule of Emperor Tiberius. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod was ruler of Galilee. Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler of the territory of these areas. Licinius was ruler of Abilene. Ananias and Sapphias were high priests. I mean, this would unravel if, if these names and dates and details um, were not uh, factual. Now, just a little bit on the names, and this is very recent. This is just um, um, information that came out, I think, in 2003 or 2004. Um, someone, uh, not, not a religious person, did a survey of names going back through history. And uh, they looked at, um, I think, over 3,000 names that were in the Israel-Palestine area around the time of Jesus. Okay, so it's just interesting to know what are the most common names. Um, you know, we do that today. If you're choosing a name for your son or for your daughter, you look up what are the most common names. Okay, we have access to this, but now we have access to what were the common names a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, and so on. And so, why is this relevant? Well, according to a, a this is a very prominent uh, German theologian, and he tries to make the case here that again, the Gospels were written long after the fact. They were written in Syria, Rome, perhaps in Asia Minor. In other words, they were not written in Israel. Okay, they're written by people speaking a different language a long time after the fact. And so the question is, uh, I mean, let's say that you're going to write a story about uh, something that happened in Germany 300 years ago. How good would you be picking German names? 
that would actually fit for names in German that were common 300 years ago. Okay? You'd have to Google that. You'd have to, you'd have to really do some research, right? You probably, probably wouldn't be very good. Even uh, names, uh, English names, 200 years ago. How accurate would you be picking good English names that were common 200 years ago? Okay, I think we wouldn't be very good at it. So how accurate are the Gospels here? Well, uh, this is a little fuzzy here, but here are the names uh, that uh, were from all this research. And it comes from things like names that are in the book of Josephus that we know was written at this time. This refers to names that were found in bone boxes, Dead Sea Scrolls. Lots of other things. Pull all of this in. What are the most common names? Most common name during this time was Simon and Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, Jesus, Ananias, and so on. And so here are just objectively, scientifically, these are the most common names in order in this time. So which names are most common in the New Testament? And this is actually the four Gospels and Acts. Most common name is Simon. Okay, fits right along with the most common names that were used in that time. Next, Joseph. And you can see this lines up uh, very, very nicely. And it would just suggest that the names that were used in this time in the New Testament were actually the names that were common in Palestine in that time. Um, So the top two men's names were Simon and Joseph. And so uh, just from all of these extra, you know, biblical sources here, those two names made up 15.6% of names in that time. In the Gospels, these two names make up 18% of names. Uh, The top nine men's names. In Israel, uh, 41% of names were either one of these nine. In the Gospels, 40% of the names used are of these top nine. Same with women. So it would just seem like, boy, that it would seem to be pretty good evidence that whoever wrote these books actually lived there and that these were real people. Okay, so if, for example, the the Gospels were written in Egypt a long time after the fact, well, we'd be having names like uh, Sabbatius, Pappas, Ptolemus. Okay, we don't have those names in the New Testament. Now, Simon is the most common name, and what you'll find in the New Testament is Anytime we come on one of these most common names, we have to have lots and lots of um, clarifying facts because Simon was so common. So anytime we have a Simon in the New Testament, well, we have to describe him because there are lots of Simons. So Simon, Peter, or Cephas. We have Simon the Zealot, Simon the Leper, Simon of Cyrene, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus, Simon the Tanner, Okay, because otherwise we're not going to know which Simon uh, that they're talking about because it was so common in that time. Okay, and again, if we want to look at other uh, things, other books that some feel, well, that should be in the Bible, the Gospel of Thomas, Mary, Gospel of Judas. Well, let's just look at the Gospel of Judas. Barbello, Sophia, Nebro, these uh, mystical names here that um, I'm not sure how to pronounce. These are, none of these are the names that were used in Palestine at that time. So again, good reason that we don't have those um, in the canon. So here's a question. Uh, Which is easier for you to remember, names or stories? Yeah, um, uh, our family, uh, well, my son is a big Rubio's fan, so we end up going to Rubio's all the time. And uh, I've learned that medical students like Rubio's too, because it seems like we always run into a a medical student or two. And uh, I'm just 
you know, I can remember oftentimes, uh, just last week we saw someone and I remembered specifically having a conversation, but I couldn't remember his name. Okay, but I remember the story. Most of us are pretty good. We'll remember stories. But names, details, boy, that's, that's tough to remember. And so here's the question. Names are difficult details. If the gospel get the names, the details right, wouldn't this suggest that it also gets the story right? Okay, it gets something right that you just would be almost impossible to get right. So I think that gives credibility that the story, we're getting the story right as well. Okay, I'm going to skip over this one. Um, superfluous details. I mentioned this a little bit, but again, we're looking for evidence. Do we really want to take this uh, believable characteristic of an eyewitness account or superfluous details? And there are tons of them in the Gospels. Okay, read about the disciples. They were in their boat getting their nets ready. Does it help you to know they were getting their nets ready? They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Um, it just happened that way. Do we need to know that the people sat down in rows of groups of 100 and groups of 50? Okay, not really, but that's what happened, and so that's how it's written. Do we need to know that when they pulled the big fish out of their nets that there were 153 in all? Now, is that a superfluous detail? Um, I actually was at a meeting once where someone tried to add that number to a date and come to some prophetic (laughs) understanding. But um, no, it was just neat. There were 153 fish. They counted it up, and it's cool. We have it in the record. So it's a superfluous detail. And again, details in a fictional fabricated story are usually relevant. They're included because they make some point in the fictional story. Details in a historical, real event are frequently irrelevant. But yet in this case, they're, they're supportive of this being a real historical event. Okay, I'm going to read this. This is the last little uh, section of slide here. This is from uh, Greg Greg Boyd's book. Um, Okay, so Easter's coming up. We're thinking about the resurrection. And let's just read the account um, here in the resurrection, about the resurrection. So early on the first day of the week. Okay, again, when? Does it matter? Well, while it was still dark. Okay, do we care that it was still dark? Mary Magdalene. Okay, that would seem to be an incriminating detail, given what we know about Mary Magdalene. She went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running, running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. Okay, this is John's modest way of referring to himself, another mark of genuineness. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have taken him. Okay, notice her self-incriminating lack of faith here. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. They were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, who cares who won the race? A completely irrelevant detail, it would seem. He bent over. Again, irrelevant, but the tomb entrance was low, a detail which is historically accurate of wealthy people of the time about the tomb. Okay, they looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. Okay, why not? Yeah, we don't know. They just didn't. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. Again, Peter... His boldness stands out in the gospel accounts, kind of makes sense. He's the one who bursts in there first. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. Again, irrelevant and unexpected detail. What was Jesus wearing? He's got the the robe there. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Okay, somewhat irrelevant and unusual. Jesus folded one part of his wrapping before he left. 
Okay, finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. And again, who cares about what exact order they went in? This is just how it happened. That's what makes it so believable. And so C.S. Lewis uh, here, coming back to him, would say, I have been reading poems, vision literature, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. And that's, I think, the point. So I think, you know, we're kind of left with this. And I think if we really come to this conclusion after we read the Gospels, then that requires some action, some response on our part. Okay, a last verse here, John 1.18. We'll come to this next time. Okay, that uh, the, the most recent uh, manuscripts, ancient manuscripts that have been found of this verse, I think this is perhaps our most accurate, accurate translation. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. So how we're going to read the Gospel of John um, here over the next couple months is we're going to see Jesus doing something, and we're going to say that's what God would do in that circumstance. We're going to equate Jesus with God and try to build our picture of God based on the life of Jesus in John. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you that uh, certainly faith in you is, is all important, but we appreciate the evidence that um, you haven't just asked us to believe without giving us evidence to believe. So pray that you would provide more evidence to us and uh, that we would have greater reason to believe in Jesus, uh, who Jesus is and was, and uh, that uh, that will become uh, meaningful in our daily lives. Amen.